Uh, resiliency is a skill set. It's a skill set that we develop over life that anyone can grow. Uh, some people have more natural ability or inherent traits towards skills that lend them to resiliency, but anyone can grow them and develop them. Welcome, everybody, to the Resiliency Theory Podcast. I'm Ashley Carson. Join in my journey as we discuss resiliency, values, and leadership with friends, peers, and leaders. Welcome, everybody, to the Resiliency Theory Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of having a conversation with JC Imikowski. She's a mental fitness coach, a certified project manager, and a laughter leader. Uh, JC, why don't you tell me your story? <laughs> That's an open question. Where do you want me to start from? Like when mom and dad fell in love or when I first became most inspired in life? <laughs> um, all right. So I guess the the long short story is I am the kind of person that's always looking for something new and always inspired by finding something new. I've had about seven careers at this point in my life. Um, it started when I was 15 and I realized I wanted to be a massage therapist. And I'm like, this is amazing. And when I was in school for massage therapy in my 20s, I had a catastrophic back injury unrelated to my massage training. So it took that career off the forefront. And from there, I went into uh, medical customer service. Then I became a professional trainer. Um, I had another injury and another setback there. And from there, it was, I became a certified project manager, a certified coach. I've been a part-time art instructor. Um, I've just, I'm one of those people that wants to learn something new and then apply it. And then that tends to turn into a career for me. I love that. Tell me more, uh, JC, about this laughter leader. I love it. I <laughs> smile. The certified laughter leader. So that's through the, um, oh my gosh, why can't I think of the name of it right now? The World Laughter Organization. I have to get this name right. Otherwise I will feel like such a heel. You know, when something comes up and as soon as you're supposed to say it, you completely blank on it. Yes. Um, so I will get that absolutely correct by the end of it or by the end of our talking here. Certified <laughs> laughter leader. It's kind of like when you write a word on a piece of paper and you're like, Oh, not really how it's spelled. It seems it's weird. killing me. Right. For the World Laughter Tour, that's what it is. Oh. World Laughter Tour. So Certified Laughter Leader, it's a program that they have um, to help integrate laughter separate from humor. Uh, it's kind of like laughter yoga. So humor is subjective, right? And I'm a member or I was uh, last year a member of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Amazing organization. Hmm. And... Uh, Laughter is therapeutic. It makes us feel good. It releases positive endorphins, positive neurochemicals. It changes our physiology. It changes our brain chemistry. So what Certified Laughter Leader does is it starts laughter without humor. So you don't have to worry about cracking a joke and someone not laughing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It takes everyday actions and turn them into laughter. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite ones that they have is called the uh, Aloha laugh. So it looks like this. How do you say hello in Hawaii? Aloha. Aloha. So you go, Aloha. <laughs> 
see, and it, and it already triggered a little bit of laughter in you too. Mm -hmm. So the laughter is being generated as like Mm -hmm. a physical function, Mm -hmm. but brains don't recognize that. Mm -hmm. And then you start doing it back and forth. So I'm going to say it to you. And then you say it back to me. Hello. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So it's, it's helping people connect to Mm -hmm. laughter without having to worry about the brain space of engaging humor at the same time. Mm, I love that. We did. Yeah, that's great. We did a, it reminds me of this mindful moment that we did very similar where it was just about laughter and it had nothing to do with humor. And, And so the mindfulness coach that was leading us through it was something similar to Aloha, but I don't remember what the prompt initially was. And by the end of it, the whole room was just, um, completely laughing for no reason other than to laugh. And it just, it felt so good at the end of that mindful moment. Yeah. It's been different in the virtual world doing this in a, in a real world setting or like face-to-face setting, people are turning to each other, the person next to them, you're getting that interpersonal energy Mm -hmm. and over the virtual platform, it's, it's still nice. It loses a little bit of that connectedness though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we've all experienced that with this virtual space and how to stay connected and, and feel connected. Cause right. while I can see you, it's a, definitely a different experience than if you and I were sitting, you know, across the table from each other or in ch- two chairs. Um, and so I appreciate having the technology and being able to do video conferencing. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly a lot of people are struggling with the more of the human connection that that you get in person. Yeah. And and that being said, if not for the increase in prevalence of virtual connection, we might not even know each other because geographically, Mm -hmm. I know that we're not even close Mm -hmm. and we're connected through like two degrees of separation on LinkedIn. So one of the gifts of the new virtual world is even if it's not that is in-person human connection. Like Mm -hmm. it's still human, but it's not that in-person energetic connection. Mm -hmm. It's being able to connect with so many more people that we never would have met before. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And it's almost, yes. And I feel like it's become more normalized too, right? Mm -hmm. Prior, if I were to reach out to people randomly on LinkedIn, I think they, people might take a pause and wonder, where is this coming from? I don't know this person. And now because connection is so important to all of us, mm-hmm. it feels like I've been able to broaden my network and people are so gracious with their time. And I'm so humbled by the individuals who will, who will have conversations with me that I'd never met in person before. Yeah. The virtual coffee is becoming much mm-hmm. more common. And I remember people inviting me to a virtual coffee when we were still in a face-to-face world. And I was kind of like, why what? Why, why would I? I could just go yeah. grab a coffee with someone else that I know. <laughs> right. Someone uh, I'm comfortable with. <laughs> right. Right. But now it's like, it's, and it's hard because so many of us are experiencing, you know, Zoom fatigue or virtual mm-hmm. meeting fatigue because we spend all day working with it. Yeah. And it's, um, it's a little harder to use it for that social and that personal yeah. connection as well, because we're getting burned out professionally. Mm-hmm. It's still there if the balance can be found for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I, uh, I've been trying to do coffee chats over zoom with, uh, employees at my company just Mm -hmm. to try and engage similar to like the water cool cooler conversation. And I often, I'm like, this isn't about work. I just want to check in and see how your two kiddos are doing or see how your family is or your new puppy. Um, cause you, 
that element has definitely gone away as we've mm-hmm. moved to virtual. And even at the beginning of meetings, you might be able to briefly connect. You just don't have that same experience. So I've been trying to create it. Um, it can be a little hard knowing that people are zoomed out. So it's like, you got to find it a space and make the space for it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, JC, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. I know when we uh, chatted previously, we just had a great conversation and, you know, I felt like we connected pretty instantaneously. Mm -hmm. So I'm really looking forward to get your perspective on resiliency. And so the Resiliency Theory podcast is really um, around the concept of resiliency. I've always been passionate to try and understand where it comes from. Is it innate? Can it be learned? My passion has come from my own personal lived experience and just seeing, experiencing that to where I'm at today and, and, and just having a lot of curiosities around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a couple of questions or theories that I'm trying to prove. And it's been interesting through the research I've been doing, what I've been learning, but is one of them is, is there a resiliency quotient? So maybe said a, another way, are there a certain set of values that make one person more resilient than another? And then another question I'm really curious about is you do do values directly correlate to resiliency? So as we kind of go through this conversation, um, I'll, we'll get to those questions. Um, but to start, JC, what would you say are your top three to five values? Oh my gosh. Um, future and or optimism, they're kind of tied to each other. Uh, safety, respect, joy, and integrity. Hmm. Thank you. Actually, just to share it, um, one of the things that I've done is a a coaching activity when I was in coach training called a life purpose statement. Mm. And uh, what it is, is it's a huge values mining exercise. Like you, you come up with dozens and dozens of values for people, find the top three or five, mine really deep into them and make a statement Mm. that is, I am the blank that blanks. I am Mm. the thing that has an impact. Um, and my, my life purpose statement, some people do this and like they think it's okay and they never go back to it. I have had mine solid for almost five years now. Hmm. My life purpose statement is I am the flashing freaking neon sign that inspires actionable change and healing. <laughs> so there's like the summary of why I'm on this planet and the encapsulation of those values that I just gave you. Like my job is to help people see their potential and live their best lives and do that for myself too. Mm, I love that. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) The flashing freaking neon sign. Yeah. And I'll tell you when I'm, when I'm in non-polite company, that's a different F word in there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I can imagine. (laughs) Um, Well, JC, where did your values come from? Like what's the origin of them or was it through lived experiences? I'd love to just hear what, you know, where future and optimism, safety, respect, joy, integrity stemmed from? So I don't know. I don't know if they're learned or if they're inherent. Hmm. 
Uh, so part of my background is I'm a survivor of domestic violence. I grew up in domestic violence uh, for my entire childhood until I moved out of my house. Mm. So I can remember being this very young, very carefree kid. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, I can feel how those values were being lived then. Mm-hmm. But those early memories are also very thoroughly mixed in with physical and emotional abuse, some mm-hmm. sexual abuse. And, and I changed as a person. So were those values always inherent and then they got tamped down by the abuse I was receiving? And then as I healed and went through counseling, did they come back and manifest more thoroughly? Mm-hmm. Or did I actually have different values when I was young and then I learned these new values as an adult, as a as a new or different person? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. One of the questions I asked, and you were starting to touch on it, but I sort of think of uh, this concept of a values audit, right? So as I go through life and I experience adversity, change, challenges, uh, taking a moment and a pause to audit my values and am I still practicing my values? Mm -hmm. Is there one value that's maybe showing up more than another in a particular environment? And, And so I wonder... Do you think they stay the same throughout the course of an individual's life? Or do you think values shift and change based on lived experiences? I think they can absolutely shift and change. And um, I think that, and some people might push back on this, that values can become toxic as well. Mm -hmm. Um, That we end up overusing them. The example being of... um, someone who has a high value of service, Mm -hmm. of serving others and being of service to the community, they might end up over serving others and never saying no and doing more than they have the energy for and taking on commitments that make them feel resentful Mm -hmm. because what feels like a value of service is driving them to say yes. Mm -hmm. But that one value has overtaken other values of them caring for themselves and it's out of whack and it's out of balance. Mm. Um, So maybe a point would come in their life where another value other than service might kind of take precedence or outweigh it and actually be of benefit for that person mm-hmm. and ultimately of benefit to the people they're serving mm-hmm. because when they're taking care of themselves, mm-hmm. um, say they they uh, bring up their value of respect, specifically respect for themselves, mm-hmm. like I need to honor my boundaries and myself, they're going to be serving people more effectively when they take the time to do that if they are respecting themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you stated values can become toxic and I hadn't really, I I hadn't really thought about it that way, but there is one particular life experience that I go back to often when it comes to this values audit. And it was um, my past relationship where uh, loyalty to me has always been a uh, loyalty and commitment has always been a really strong value of mine. Mm -hmm. And, and, and sometimes to the detriment of my own, of my own self and my own needs. Uh, and, and I stop asking the question, like, is this serving me? How is it serving me? And what I realized, it took me a long time to get here, JC, but what I realized after that relationship and once that relationship ended is I was being loyal to the point where it wasn't serving me anymore. And I forgot to be loyal to my own needs mm-hmm. and, and what I, what I needed or what I wanted with my relationship with my son. And so it's just a very interesting realization to get to where I, it had almost become toxic in a way where it wasn't actually serving me or, or what I needed. 
Yeah. And, and I've heard that from so many different people, from friends, family, clients, everything, fellow coaches. And the pushback I've gotten from some people is once it becomes toxic, it's not really a value anymore. Mm-hmm. Like values are things that are inherently positive. Mm-hmm. And uh, once they go over into that level of not serving you and becoming detrimental or even harmful, it's, it's technically not a value. So that's, it's an interesting idea. And to me, it's, it feels a little semantic in the labeling because the concept is really clear. Too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. Right, exactly. Well, and I, I might argue, like, I don't think that it's no longer a value of mine or it can't be. I've actually just had to sit with that mm-hmm. and sit with it in this audit to really understand, well, what does that mean to me? Mm-hmm. Right. And how do I want to ensure that I am practicing it as a true value of mine? And one thing that continues to astound me, and this is not in a judgmental way, this is almost in a heartbreaking way, mm. is how many people don't know their values. Yeah. Like they they live them. They live like this vague concept of, yeah, I like helping people and I do that, right. but they're not connected to their values specifically. Mm. And once we know our values, we can actually live our best life because living and honoring our values feels so much better than just... Mm moseying along in life. Like there's, there's reward in living our values. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that kind of goes back. If you don't know what they are, then sometimes too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And and, and maybe it's because there's just a lack of awareness to what they are. I see that so many times with my clients. I'll have coaching clients come in like, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. Like I'm 50 years old and I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And then we do values work for a couple of months and they're like, boom, on it, done. Got it. Now it's just a matter of checking the boxes. Yep. Isn't that so interesting? I love it. Yeah, I love it too. Um, Well, thinking about your values, can you think of a time when one of your values or your values were challenged? And maybe what was it? And, and sort of taking it a step further, like maybe what would you have done differently in that scenario? Um, I can think of the reason I laughed is uh, one of the examples I think of offhand actually has to do with my um, partner, John, wonderful guy. So I have huge values for um, optimism. That's what I call it. But it's like potential, future, what can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP. And that NF has this big, like people-oriented future perspective. Big picture, what can we do? Oh my God, like what are the rainbows and bunnies and balloons for the future? Because we're going to find them. Like that's the energy yeah. that I tend to carry. Uh, which is interesting because I've lived with PTSD, anxiety, and clinical depression for decades, right. but this this part of me is still mm-hmm. there, like going at that. Mm-hmm. So my boyfriend, my amazing, wonderful, supportive, fantastic boyfriend, is um, he tends to be more reserved and traditional mm-hmm. and kind of risk averse. Mm-hmm. So his values are uh, consistency, stability. And uh, when I first started my coaching business, so I was a certified project manager Mm -hmm. and I went to this weekend coaching seminar because I'm like, coaching is just hurting cats. This is going to be great. It's going to help me as a PM. And 10 minutes into this seminar, I was connected to my values in a way that had never happened. My life had changed. I was in tears and I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is what I have to do with the rest of my life. This is a calling. Mm -hmm. So the weekend ends, I call my boyfriend. It's a three hour drive home. And I'm like, Hey, sweetie, you know how I just got the best job of my life and all the bills are paid off and I'm making all this money and everything is great. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a quit and start a business as a coach. I'll be home in three hours for us to talk about it. 
click. <laughs> Imagine it like consistently. <laughs> His mind's like boom. Which is why I was like, we'll talk when we get home. And then just gave him time for his brain to melt. Right. And um, is that like I just walked and quit my job the next day? But the next six months while I was getting ready to start this business, yeah. we kept butting heads over and over. So I would be like, hey, I got this idea and here's what I'm going to do with my business. And he would come back very consistently with something like, well, don't get too excited. It mm -hmm. takes two years to start a business and turn a profit. Clients aren't just going to come out of the woodwork. You're going to have to do a lot of work. It's going to be really hard. And after this happening for months and months, I was just one day, I just freaked out on him. I was like, okay, here's the deal. I'm excited about what I'm going to do. I have found my calling in life. And every time I bring it up, you literally just dump mm -hmm. water all over my parade. What is going on mm -hmm. here? Like, you, you got to let me be happy about this. Mm -hmm. And we talked and he kept explaining where he was coming from. And finally, he said, I'm just worried about you. I want to make sure that you know mm. the challenges that are out there. And it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, oh my gosh. Okay, let me get this straight. And I said to him, you are a more risk averse person mm -hmm. and you are taking care of me by making sure that I know what risks might come up. You are keeping me safe. And he was like, yes, like he's been doing this for months. And I finally realized, and I was like, okay, so I, I was like, you're, you're, you're honoring your values so hard. Here's the deal. I am a project manager. I've done a risk assessment. Right. I just don't care. Not the way that you do. I am aware of every risk you're bringing up, but they don't stop me. They don't give me the anxiety right. they give you because I'm being driven by what I can do in mm -hmm. the future, by what I can give to the world and my values of service and future and potential and helping people mm -hmm. fulfill their potential mm -hmm. is what's driving me. So I'm going to tell you, I hear what you're saying and you need to stop protecting me mm -hmm. by shoving your values in my face. Mm -hmm. I don't want that. I don't need you to stop me from jumping off the cliff because right. I've already jumped. I need you to remind me that I can fly. Mm -hmm. And that was like a light bulb for him too, because we had been trying so hard. And instead of talking to each other, it's like we had been talking past each other for months. And then we finally made this connection in mm -hmm. and it was it was such a huge relief for both of us. It was still hard. There's still yeah. challenges, but realizing that the way we had been making each other cra crazy was just a manifestation of how much we cared mm -hmm. was a big deal. Mm -hmm. I love that story. Um, and I love your passion. The, the one thing <clears throat> that I do want to acknowledge is I really appreciate your, the balance JC that you have, you came from a, a pretty tough lived experience as a kid and a young adult and that's a lot of trauma to overcome mm -hmm. and you still have this like beautiful passionate optimistic perspective of like okay yeah that's all there but what can i do to serve others and how can i think about it from a different perspective and i just want to make sure we take the time to acknowledge that because i think it's it's hard to do and it's really beautiful at the same time 
Thank you. That's that's really sweet and kind, and I appreciate the recognition. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you bring that up. So I have been in, in different kinds of counseling on and off for probably 25 years now. Like I started counseling before I was even in my teens. Mm-hmm. My parents were aware there was a problem in our dynamic, and I'm lucky that my family embraced mental health care. Mm-hmm. And I still deal with PTSD, uh, the anxiety and depression to this day. Like this is, this is a lifelong experience for me. Thinking back to when I was in my 20s, when I was still a lot, I'm just going to say messier in my head. And I'm mm-hmm. saying that about myself. And I mean it respectfully to anyone else who's having mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. I'm not calling you a mess or saying there's anything wrong. It's just right. my word to describe me. In my 20 or 20s, I was a lot messier in my head. Mm-hmm. Thinking back about it, I was always the organizer of my group of friends. Mm-hmm. I was the one that was like mm-hmm. making the plans and making sure we were together and making sure that everyone was on time and trying to take care of people. And like that caretaking, which I did did way too much. You know, I was mm-hmm. the the poster child for over-serving others and underserving myself. Mm-hmm. But I was driven by that value of by connection and family and wanting to be with these people that I had chosen as my family that were amazing. Mm-hmm. And as I got healthier and healthier, I actually fell out of that role mm-hmm. and into roles that served me better. Um as you know, we went through talk therapy and then EMDR and biofeedback and all of the different modalities that brought me to where I am today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. A lot of what you're saying is really resonating with me personally. And so I'm just kind of sitting with it. I, I definitely had a similar lived experience as a kid. And what was interesting about it is when I became an adult, you know, whatever that means to people, um, <laughs> I basically continued to play that out in my adult life because that's all I knew that was normal or or at least normal for me. Right. I know that's not the same for everybody. And it took me, took me a long time two pretty long relationships to realize, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't need to continue to live in that same sort of space and totally different than my, my upbringing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There were aspects of it that I sort of allowed to continue and to perpetuate. And I loved both of those individuals dearly, but it's just really interesting how you allow yourself. And I didn't have the awareness at the time to realize what was really happening. Um, and I similar was an organizer because I wanted a family and a family unit that I wasn't actually getting with my, my own family. And so that was super important to me. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing that. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of things that I, I, I I certainly can relate to. I think a key of what you said in there was that you weren't aware, Mm -hmm. like we can only work with what we're aware of. Mm -hmm. One of my foundational beliefs for existence and this manifests in almost everything I do is choice is one of the only things we have, Mm -hmm. but you Mm -hmm. can't make a choice if you don't know it's there. Um, and you know, one of the examples I give is I, I hated myself. I literally loathed myself until I was about 31 years old mm-hmm. and I didn't know it. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trash talking myself constantly. I was terrible to myself. I had a horrible self relationship. I had no value for myself. Mm-hmm. I assumed when my friends hung out with me, people that I had known for over a decade that they were just bored and men only dated me because there was like no better choice out there. Mm-hmm. But, no self-worth. Um, and I went in to see my favorite counselor one day. And I love that I've had enough counselors that I have a favorite. Oh my God, this guy was so wonderful. <laughs> His name is Dr. Fish. And um, 
he's like, JC, how are you doing? Like, oh, Dr. Fish, I've just had a crappy day. It's not going well. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you say to yourself when you're having a bad day? Not even missing a beat. Like, I tell myself to shut the F up. No one cares. Put on your big girl panties. Uh, Don't make it anyone else's problem. What's wrong with me anyways? Anyone else could take care of this. And by the way, shut the F up. Sound familiar, anybody? Self-talk, yeah, exactly. Right, right. (laughs) Well, JC, it sounds like you're not very nice to yourself. And I laughed at him until I cried, like, oh my God, Dr. Fish, (laughs) what, are people nice to themselves? Yeah, Yeah, they are. Mm. Oh, Mm. oh. Oh, mm-hmm. now people had told me before that I trash talk myself and I don't value myself. Right. Like plenty of people had said it, but I had never been in the right place to hear it. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. finally, I realized there that how I treated myself was a choice. Yeah, It had been so normalized for me to trash talk myself because that's what I grew up with. Everyone trash talking each other, nobody valuing anyone else because our family unit was, was so broken, yeah. so unfortunate. Um, and once I realized there was a choice, I remember distinctly a couple of weeks later, I was driving home and a song came on the radio and I started crying and I was immediately like, shut up, you baby. Why are you crying? It's so mm-hmm. stupid. It's just a song on the radio. And then I stopped and said, wait, it's okay to cry at a song on the radio. Mm-hmm. And then I started crying even more because I had seen that moment of self-trashing Mm-hmm. And recognized it and made a choice for this little eensy tiny bit of self-kindness. And it felt like a lie. It felt mm-hmm. weird. It felt yeah. stupid to do it. But it was choosing something different. Mm-hmm. And that was over 10 years ago. And it's been a, a practice ever since then to keep yeah. building up that acceptance and compassion towards myself. Mm-hmm. I love that. The, it's it's really interesting because what what i what i had find what i find myself doing or at least more in the past tense is the thing you said where you weren't in a space you weren't ready to hear it yet right mm-hmm. and for the longest time i didn't think it exi- it was real like so what people might have been saying to me oh my god right i was like that's not true you're crazy like you don't know what you're talking about and i just for whatever reason, I either justified or um, I had a different image in my mind. And and so it's like, it's interesting to think about it from a different perspective of like, maybe I wasn't ready to hear it, right? Mm-hmm. There was something else innate in me that was creating a barrier to, to allow that level of self-awareness or to want to have a conversation about something that maybe did exist. I just... Didn't, I didn't want to deal with it yet. Right. Yeah. I, I dated this guy. He was a great guy. We were together for five years. And for the first like three years of our relationship, I'm not even kidding. He called or texted pretty much every day to say, I love you and you're beautiful. And every time it happened, it was like water off a duck's back. It you're stupid. <laughs> I actually thought that about this guy. Oh my God. It was so horrible. Like yeah. I, I apologized to him in the future saying, I realized what you were doing and I wasn't in a place to hear it. I invalidated every kind thing he ever said Mm. to me. And he was like, I know, I know you did. All I could do was keep trying. Mm, That's sweet. 
Yeah. Yeah. He was a good dude. We were friends. We were good friends after we split up. It is. It's so interesting. I mean, I've done that too. You know, when someone tells me like, I love you or, you know, like you're the love of my life. I'm like, that doesn't exist. Things like that don't exist. Like <laughs> well, you've been reading fiction again. Ha 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 ha. Exactly. <laughs> like you're nuts. I, nope. I, you know, like, nope, not true. I can't hear that. Uh, it's been a lot of work though. I mean, it's, it's definitely a journey. It's a process. And I think, you know, moving to like this idea of resiliency, it's like, how do one, how do we build a resiliency muscle? Right. And how do we get to this place where maybe we are practicing resiliency and how do our values support that? And so I'd love to start what would be, if, if you had to define what resiliency is, what's your definition of resiliency? Uh, resiliency is a skill set. Mm-hmm. It's a skill set that we develop over life that anyone can grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people have more natural ability or inherent traits towards skills that lend them to resiliency, but anyone can grow them and develop them. Mm-hmm. And uh, foundational to that skill set is kindness for yourself, empathy Mm -hmm. for yourself, and empathy for other people. Mm. I love that. I love it because it's so hopeful. I've had people be Mm -hmm. like, I'm I'm never going to get through this. I don't know how to be resilient. Like, resiliency is a hundred different skills Mm -hmm. used in a million different ways. Just Mm -hmm. find one or two that make sense for you that get you through this day Mm -hmm. or this minute. Mm -hmm. And then over time, you'll be getting through this week or this month with different skills or growing those skills that you have. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's interesting. You know, I sort of look at the Webster definition of resiliency and I've, I've modified it through conversation and through, through aspects of things that I think are really important. And so how I've sort of thought about resiliency is it's how one responds in the wake of adversity or challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, But then a, a, recent guests talked a lot about letting go and to be resilient, you have to let go. And I was struck by that comment because the way to move forward in, 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 in tough times, you have to let go of the context of what you thought or, or the concept of the life that you thought you were going to have. So like that perfect married life with the great house in suburbia and, you know, annual travel, like all of that is just a picture that you create and that you put upon yourself. And so you have to let go of that to move on. And then I also think for me, what's been really important as I've lived my own journey is like, I want to learn from each experience because I think it's in the learning and it's in the struggle that you can, there's a, there's, there's a lot of growth that can happen to become like that better version of yourself. And so I, I try and think about each experience and like, what is it I can take from it? And am I holding on to anything that's actually holding me back? I, um, one of my most popular presentations is actually called the brilliance of resilience. And, mm. and I love it because I actually have the definition of resilience in that presentation mm. as well. Like the dictionary definition, yeah. um, the dictionary says it's the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties or toughness. Right. And then I put it out to the audience and say, but what does resilience mean to you? And in virtual, it's dropping it in the chat box and everyone gets to share their experiential definition mm-hmm. of resilience, which is just as important as what the dictionary says. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a cycle, right? It's the cycle between challenge, resilience, and growth. So you experience a challenge. Resilience mm-hmm. is how you move through it. And, and you know, you, you, 
you survive the challenge, resilience is how you kind of move through it and navigate it. And then growth is what comes after. Mm -hmm. And then the cycle starts again, challenge, resilience, growth, challenge, Mm -hmm. resilience, growth. And so many people judge themselves for being in the midst of a challenge. And Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, I'm not resilient. Mm -hmm. You know what? Maybe in the challenge isn't the time to be resilient. In the challenge is when you survive. It's when you get by. Mm -hmm. It's it's not about recovering. It's about experiencing. Mm -hmm. And then when the experience is ramping down enough, then you start to begin your recovery from it. Mm -hmm. And then once your recovery is going, then that that question of what did I learn? That's Mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. Then you look at what did I learn? Mm-hmm. So I'm in, I'm, I use this amazing program called positive intelligence. It's been hugely mm-hmm. beneficial and resonant for me. And one of the things they talk about is the three gifts. Every challenge has a gift in it. Um, you learn something, you build your values or you're inspired to do something. Mm-hmm. But even there, they're clear. This is for looking at challenges that you can be with. Mm-hmm. So like I'm a survivor of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. I would never go to 16-year-old me and say, hey, what is the gift in your experience right Mm -hmm. now? Mm -hmm. I would have been like, blow it out your butt. There's no (laughs) gift in here. This is horrible. Mm -hmm. But as an adult, I can look back and say, Mm -hmm. those experiences made me who I am. And I love my life. They taught Mm -hmm. me empathy for others. Mm -hmm. It was because of that I learned how to love myself. Mm -hmm. So when people people actually use resilience as a little bit of a um a, a whip to bash themselves with you're not resilient enough Shh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're resilient when the time is right for it mm-hmm. and trying to be resilient when you need to survive is is not being kind to yourself mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean i can look back so one i love the challenge resilience growth absolutely i, I have a couple interest couple memories where, you know, I can look back and really, I think about my childhood and I can look back and appreciate my parents and know that they were doing the best they could with the faculties that they had. And I don't, I don't fault them for that, for what that was. I don't blame them. Was it a good environment for me? No, but also like I can, I love them and I understand why it was happening you know, Mm -hmm. and I can have the empathy for where they were coming from. But that, that, JC, that took me a long time to get to that place where I can even talk about it in this, from this perspective. And then there was also another experience later in life, totally different. But my ex-partner and I, lots of stuff were just, was like just falling down on us and lots of financial issues and our sewer went out and my son broke his arm and like all of these things all at once, you know, it's like when it rains, of course. And I just remember, I don't know what had triggered in me one day, but we were driving home and we were talking about it. And I had this really interesting mental reframe and this isn't my typical uh, thought process, but I was like, I think we're only given what we can handle. (laughs) My partner at the time like slammed on the brakes. She's like, are you feeling okay? Because this is not your normal thought. But I had to, for me, it was like, I have to reframe this in a way because I know we will get through it, right? Well, it feels like a lot today. We have to overcome it and we have to solve for it regardless if we want to. And so that kind of helped me shift it to a more of an optimistic place so that I could continue to figure out how to solve for all of the things that were sort of faced and put in front of us that we had to face. I love that. That is a beautiful tool for shifting from that space of survival to that Mm -hmm. space of resilience. The, the not, not just 
oh my God, I can't do it. Like I'm barely hanging on to mm-hmm. wait a second. I, I have a little bit of agency here. I have capability. It's, um, it's switching from like a disempowered victim space mm-hmm. of what's happening to me to a more empowered space of what am I doing? And that shift from, from being out of control to making those choices. Again, once you see the choices and you can start making them, that's to me, the transition into resilience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, I love that you use the term agency because we all have agency. It's just a matter of how we, if we choose to use it and, right. and if, and depending on what it is, is it, do we have maybe the resources to also use our agency? Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's go back to your definition. Um, there are a couple of things you touched on that I'd like to go back to. So you had mentioned that uh, resiliency is a skill, um, one that, uh, you know, we can naturally grow. So I'd love to hear, you know, one of the questions I have is like, do you think it's innate and, and, or do you think it, can be taught? And if so, how, right? So what does it take? Cause I think it is a little innate in all of us. It's how we practice it and build the skill, but I'm curious to hear like, what are your thoughts on that? And, and if it can be taught, how do we teach people resiliency? So this, this is interesting. And this gets into a little bit of brain science from my perspective. Uh, I think that there's generally speaking in most people, there's an inherent survival instinct to stay alive from one day to the next. Um, How we stay alive and do that is driven by our experiences and what we expect that to look like. And as someone who grew up experiencing, uh, I'm just going to call it significant trauma. Like Mm -hmm. I've, I'm not a survivor of like wartime or, you know, civil war, or I, I wasn't like, there's so many worse things that could have happened to me, but the trauma was significant for me. Right. So as a survivor of trauma, my brain is different from someone that didn't experience that. Like literally the way that our brains wire up, the neural pathways that are made and the parts of our brains that develop are different from survivors of trauma than they are from people who don't experience it. Mm-hmm. And there's some really great books on this. Um, the mm-hmm. Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, Memory and Trauma by, mm-hmm. oh, Peter something whose name I can't remember. But but a trauma survivor's brain is different mm-hmm. than a non-trauma survivor's brain. So someone who has had um, a non-traumatic upbringing, those skills of resiliency might be more inherent. Those skills of empathy, of self-compassion, of um, you know, setting boundaries, respecting oneself, that mm-hmm. type of thing. Mm-hmm. For someone who's been in drama or in trauma, it is a much more learned skill. For me, mm-hmm. it was a learned skill. I was hanging on by my fingernails for years until I started developing this skill set in my late twenties, I developed it a little. And in my early to mid thirties is when I made my biggest jumps. Hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question. It, there may be a little bit inherent there, but for others, some people have easier access than others. Yeah. And rewiring those, those parts of the brain, those, those trauma habits and those trauma triggers, rewiring them is possible. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It is a lot of work and you have to, you have to be willing to do the work. You have to know the work is there to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the things I'm curious about is, um, do you think that values and resiliency are directly correlated? Absolutely. If you, 
Um, and more specifically, awareness of and connection to values. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know your values and you are choosing to live your life by following your values, that's going to correlate with that empowered, resilient space mm-hmm. because you're making choice to serve yourself compassionately and to, to take care of yourself. Living your values is self-care. And self-care is one of the fundamentals of resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know what your values are and if you're not honoring them or, or heaven forbid you're living your life against them, say that you have big values of teamwork and community and you're working in an organization that is highly competitive mm-hmm. and you are rewarded for screwing other people over to get as far ahead as you can, that's, that's actually going to make it harder for you to be resilient because you're antagonizing your core beliefs. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I... I love the the concept of having the awareness, how important that is, right? Because I often think, <clears throat> I think our values allow us to be resilient, mm-hmm. but resiliency also allows us to practice our values. But it's really critical that you have an awareness to what those are and then taking it back to like that audit. Am I, are my values serving me right now, right? Am I serving myself? And, mm-hmm. and trying to understand if there's dissonance, what is the dissonance and, and really sitting with that and creating the space for yourself to sit with it, which is really the awareness piece. Self-awareness is so challenging for so many, for all of us, you know, mm-hmm. and for, for some it's easier and for others it's not. Um, but I think it also goes back to that comment. It's like when we're ready to hear something or when we're ready to deal with something that might trigger trauma, PTSD, sadness, depression, grief, you know, you're just not ready to sit with it. Mm-hmm. I think some people are lucky too, in that they, they kind of stumble onto their values. Like maybe someone who has a high value of faith has a strong faith-based or spiritual practice. They have a good community. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're engaging in their practice regularly with people who support it. And so they're honoring their value of faith yeah. or a maker someone who has a big value for creating, for making, for building, Mm -hmm. and they have a hobby building boats, or maybe they work as a builder. Someone who has a value of nature and gets a job as a forest ranger or an arborist or, or has a garden, you know, they, they stumble onto it. And if they knew that those were values, could they live them even more fully? And could those values serve them even more? I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Let's go back to this idea of, you know, building the resiliency muscle. And I understand it's different for all people. It's based on lived experiences. Um, You know, some, it's interesting. It's one of the reasons it's such a a topic of interest of mine is because you see two children come from the same family. and, And I often wonder like what veers them in these different paths, right? And is it because of the modeled behavior? Is it because they don't have the resiliency? Is it that lack of self-awareness? I've always been very fascinated by that and and trying to understand what, as we go through challenge or adversity, what steers people in one direction or another? Yeah, that's... That's really interesting. So I will I will only speak at this at a very high level. Um, I, I do yeah, have course. a sister. Uh, she and I grew up in the same experience and we are not close with each other because of our family challenges. Mm-hmm. We had a hard time developing a relationship. But I will say that she has also grown to be a professional healer, a professional community organizer, mm-hmm. and that 
she and I do a lot of the same things and have the same values of service and caring for others, even though we grew up in trauma and we dealt with it in different ways. So I can tell you that Mm -hmm. I think people's nature comes out despite what they've experienced Mm -hmm. for people who've grown up in Mm -hmm. parallel experiences. And that's because we're not close. I can't Mm -hmm. speak much more to it, but I know that's something that, that has always fascinated me that, we both followed mm-hmm. healing practices and arts and, uh, and our, our jobs are of service to others. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, as small children, my sister and I, well, I guess more as teens, um, we were completely different kids. I was like the straight A student that would ball when I got a B, which by the way, I think I got one B because of the pressure I put on mm-hmm. myself my entire life to be perfect, right? I was trying, it's like I was trying to make up for what was missing in my life or trying to, trying to not create more grief in the household because I knew what could happen by creating strife. But, but my sister, on the other hand, she was, she was a bit of a rebel. She did all sorts of inappropriate things in our teenage years. And I wonder, I was like, is that, is she modeling the behavior based on what she's experiencing or is she rebelling against the life that she's in in a way that is maybe self soothing to her. Right. And it's just, it's always been, a fascination of mine. And I've never actually asked her name's Betsy. I've never actually asked Betsy, like, Hey, do you have the same memory of this? And and why do you like, if you had to identify what took you down that path, what was it? It's just, you know, really that idea of self-soothing, I think is you're really hitting on something big there. Um, any behaviors that we engage in, even destructive behaviors, we're doing it because we have mm-hmm. some side, some sort of drive that it's the right thing to do, the right thing in that circumstance. And a lot of it comes back to our want for love, for attention, for validation, right. for security, for comfort. When we don't have those things, we will do all sorts of stuff that our brains like, try this, try this, try this, try this. And if it gets even the slightest bit of feedback, even if it's from a rebellious behavior, if it gets the slightest feedback that says, ooh, that was attention or that was mm-hmm. validation, then it can hook into that. And that's one of the ways that unhealthy neural pathways and habits and, and brain patterns develop. You know, it's uh, interesting about that, JC, is I, I then think of it from a different scenario, right? My my partner, they had a, a totally different mm-hmm. life experience. Um, they were comfortable, um, you know, li- there wasn't any type of um, abuse that existed in that home. Um, two, two parents that loved their kids, you know, cared for them, affluent, all this stuff. However, very similarly, you know, one individual was constantly driven by success. And then the other individual sort of went down this path of um, rebellion. And so, you know, I think about what I loved is what you said was this, uh, this looking for love, attention, validation, comfort. But in that, in that particular scenario, I, it existed. And so then it makes me even more curious going back to like what steers people down different pathways. I'm going to, but, which is really rare because I typically, yes, I am, but this is yeah. going to be a, but I want to hear but it. <laughs> did comfort mean the same thing to both of those children? So even, even if they well, were yeah, in uh, an affluent, yeah. you know, a, by all appearances, supportive environment, yeah. if there was something happening, if there was some sort of validation they needed, if there was something that just wasn't there that they didn't know how to verbalize or ask for, yeah. then it just wasn't there despite everyone's best efforts. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is 
so fascinating. And you're right. Like perception is different, like comfort feelings, all of that lived experience is different depending on who you are. Right. Um, but I, I do, I mean, I bring it back just to my, my son and my previous relationship. He was constantly looking for love, attention, validation, and the way he got it is by going and getting in trouble, you know, because that was his only, he had figured out his coping mechanism and his way to get that was by creating a riff because then he would have the attention versus just having a, a, a space for him to have that loving and compassionate environment. So that definitely played out a lot in his, uh, very similar to my sister in our teenage, in his teenage years, like doing everything he could to fight against rules because he didn't feel like he had the love and the care that he needed as a child. Yeah. And that's, I, I mentioned earlier, there's this program I did called positive intelligence that really, really resonated with me. And one of the things that mm -hmm. um, positive intelligence or PQ does is it breaks down um, the ways that we undermine ourselves into a set of saboteurs. And this is coach speak. Like coaches talk about our mental saboteurs. Yeah. Some people <laughs> call them the inner critic or the gremlin. But in this set of saboteurs, there's nine um, kind of uh, associate saboteurs. And then there's one judge. And the way that we judge ourselves, judge others, and judge circumstances is like universal. Everyone has this judge. But these other uh, associate saboteurs, one of them is called the victim. It was my number one saboteur mm -hmm. when I went through the program. And the thing with the victim is they are always seeing what's going wrong and then responding to that because mm -hmm. that's still attention. And they equate the attention they get from letting people know how wrong things are with the love that they actually want. Mm -hmm. And I read that. I, I took the assessment for the program and I read it and I was like, oh my God, these people live in my closet and watch me. Like, how can they know that this is so what's happening? And, and it comes from that desire to be recognized and loved for who we are and not knowing how to ask for it, not having gotten it. So not having learned how to ask for it in the situation that we need it in some circumstance. Mm. Yeah, that is so interesting. It's got my brain sort of swirling into a different place that we don't have time to move towards. But it's like, how do parents, like, how do parents know? We don't have to answer this, but like, how do, how do you know how kids want to be loved, right? And to right. support them and show up and meet them where they're at. That's a really hard skill to possess. And and if you strip out being a parent, then you take it into like the workforce or in the, in the business space or with your friends, like all people just want to be cared for and loved. Mm -hmm. And so you have, to, there's, it's hard to identify for every unique individual that you meet, how to meet them where they're at and give them the support that they're, they're looking for. And that is so much of the coaching work that I do with, with professionally yeah. with teams and personally, it's usually with family units. Everyone's just trying to do their best, but their best sometimes, you know, butt heads against each other. And there's that that yeah. golden rule of do unto others as you would have done unto you. And to me, that doesn't work because not everyone wants the same attention I want. So that platinum rule of do unto right. others as they want done unto them, that's key. But figuring out what they want done unto them, and especially when it comes to children and younger people, I will tell you, when I was a 16-year-old, mm -hmm. clinically depressed, anxiety-ridden, traumatized teenager, I did not know how to tell anyone what I needed. And even though my parents were taking right. me to therapy and people were asking, I would, 
I don't know. Yeah. Right. I didn't know until I was like 35 years old, man, 20 years. It took me to figure it out. So all we can Mm -hmm. do is our best and Mm -hmm. try to give, try to give our, our families and our colleagues and everyone the best resources we can Mm -hmm. for communication and trust people to, this goes more for adults than kids, trust people to be responsible for themselves and, and help manifest and um, stand up for their own needs with kids, helping them recognize Mm -hmm. what their own needs are. It's, it's a challenge. It's just, it's yeah, not as easy yeah. as like, so how do you want me to love you? Cool. I'll check that box. We're done. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's true. Well, and I think it's actually, I think we're tapping into something when we go back to those examples, mm-hmm. right? If, if it is hard, it is so hard to know how mm-hmm. to meet your children where they're at. And so in those particular examples, maybe the, you know, like I know my son, he failed to recognize, not failed to recognize. That's a really harsh way to put it. He didn't have the words to articulate how he was feeling in those, Mm -hmm. in that, in that home until he figured out how to express it. And, and so like that could possibly be why some children in a self-soothing way do things that make them feel better or others for me, what was self-soothing it's to make sure I was constantly Mm -hmm. successful. Right. Um, And that's because it's not as if my parents were asking me, Hey, how do you want to be loved? And then back to your point, it's not just a checkbox. Like there's so much more to it. And there's so much to, to um, uncover when it comes to caring for each other. Uh, and everyone experiences things differently, right? It's so complex. So human humans are just such a complex um, being and, and there's no black or white or right or wrong answer as it comes when it comes to, supporting and loving. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because PQ has another saboteur called the stickler, which is the perfectionist. And this is the, this is the one that's like, I need to fix everything. It's all up to me. I know how to do it right. I'm going to, I'm going to like take care of everything. Mm-hmm. And it has a hyper achiever. Like if I do things, I am valuable. If I accomplish this, I am right. valuable. If I achieve X circumstance, then my life is good. And then when you get there, it still doesn't, match up. I I laughed because I was like raising my hand because that's exactly sort of the space that I have existed in for a very long time. And that was definitely, I always thought, oh, if I right. get to this next place, then I'll, I'll finally get there. We'll finally get where, like, what the, what the hell does that mean? You know? And so, and there, I can't even define what that meant to me at the time. Uh, really interesting. Let's go. I want to spend just a little bit more time on positive intelligence. I, I like, I love the concept. I love what you've shared. Are there certain, I guess, takeaways for the listeners from positive intelligence that maybe they should practice or concepts they should think about knowing that obviously they're not going through the program, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of nuggets that you've shared that I think are really valuable. Uh, well, first off, I'm going to give credit where it's due. Positive intelligence was developed by a man named yeah. Shirzad Sharmin. Uh, He is the former CEO of the Coactive Training Institute, which is the organization I trained through. They're Mm -hmm. one of the biggest coach training programs in the world. And he and his team did years Mm -hmm. of research with over half a million people around the globe to to identify Mm -hmm. these saboteurs and the judge, as well as five sage powers. So there's like our saboteur brain, and these are those negative voices that hijack us and take us over and motivate us through fear and anxiety. If you don't Mm -hmm. do this, you will X. You know, if you you do Mm -hmm. this, then the world will blow up. The five sage powers are empathy, 
curiosity, values, creativity, and laser-focused action. And so what he does is helps people to recognize when they're hijacked by saboteurs and then make that intentional choice to, all right, so what would help here most? Would it be empathy for myself or someone else? Would it be getting Mm -hmm. curious about the situation? Um, One person I worked with tended to judge other people really harshly. Like they would say something and she'd be like, oh my God, they're so stupid. And instead she learned to ask herself, what would it be like if I behave differently? What would it be like if I Mm. thought differently? And it was this incredibly powerful curiosity that let her shift her relationship with literally everyone she knew. Um, One of my big saboteurs is called the avoider. This is that one that keeps putting everything off and procrastinates because doing it wrong or like it's just too stressful to do it so you don't do it but it piles up and just gets worse Mm -hmm. and laser focused action that intentional all right i just need to pick a small thing and i need to do a thing to get it started Mm -hmm. uh so the positive intelligence um shirzad wrote a book and i recommend checking it out it's it's on the amazons if anyone's interested Uh, It's a great read, and it talks about these different aspects, the saboteurs and the sage. And it also talks about um, PQ as a practice, what he calls PQ reps. Mm -hmm. So when you feel yourself getting hijacked, when you feel like maybe that hyperachiever drive to like do all the things, or for me, it's like, I'm just going to read a book for another 45 minutes instead of doing my social media post. Um, PQ reps are almost like mini mindfulness techniques. Like you take a breath and really Mm. feel it, or you rub your fingers together and concentrate on the feel of your fingertips that you get grounded in the present, in the moment. And you, it's a pattern interrupt for that saboteur mindset. So it stops that saboteur voice, brings you into the present. And from there, it's easier to make the choice to use that sage Mm. skill. I love Um, that. And I've... And I will tell you, I have been through so many different kinds of like certifications, training, counseling, all sorts of like, I'm a personal growth junkie. And this, this idea really resonated with me. Like they really connected with me. I know other people that have gone through the program. They're kind of like, eh, it's not my thing. Yeah. So so the, the most important thing is even though I love positive intelligence, I do group coaching in it. I just, I, I'm totally like smitten with it. Um, that everything isn't for everyone. So even as I'm gushing about this, if someone in your audience checks out the book and they're like, this doesn't make any sense to me, that's completely cool. Go find something else that does. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because certain things speak to different people, different people, right? Right. For all sorts of reasons. And for a lot of the things that we've even touched on today, right? Lived experiences, what you're looking for, what you have an awareness of. I mean, there's so many things that... Are you a cat person? Are you a dog person? Who knows? Yeah. Are you a cat person or a dog person? Yes. Both? Absolutely. <laughs> Love them both so much. Not a standard question, but I thought it was appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I, How about you? I thought I was a cat person, but turns out I think I'm a dog person. So yeah. Cat, I grew up a cat person, got my first dog. And then I'm like, this is amazing. And I love them both. I, I appreciate how independent cats are. They're like, I don't need you. And then, yeah. but I also, I have a love hate relationship with that independence. Cause it's like, no, I want to cuddle you come here. And they're like, get away from me. You human. <laughs> One of the cutest memes I saw that made me laugh forever was 
it was just a little side by side. It was a picture of a dog and it was like, dog, man's best friend, cat, man's weird antisocial roommate that poops in a box. Well, I have a couple more questions for you. I have absolutely yeah, yeah. loved this conversation. Um, and yeah, you're the funnest talking to you is awesome. I just really appreciate uh, what you've shared and your thoughts on my resiliency theory. So I'd love to go back to the question or the theory that I'm trying to prove or curious about proving. Do you think that um, there's a resiliency quotient? So a set of values that make individuals more resilient than others? I'll be honest. I don't think that there's a set of values that make people more resilient than others. I think it's how someone connects to and leverages their values that will support them in their resilience. Actually, I'm going to amend that. So I'm an external thinker, I think, by letting words out of my mouth. So we're going to go through phases in this. Mm -hmm. I think there are some values such as uh, community or empathy that may lend themselves to people being more resilient when they have these values. Um, A value of, say, achievement or like accomplishment may not help someone as much as empathy if empathy is what they need, right? but it still comes down to whether or not they're actually living them. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, I really like, I really like thinking about it from this, this place of like what they need mm-hmm. one. And then are they actually living them? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and there's positive intelligence goes into that a little bit mm-hmm. too. It suggests that our saboteurs come from us overusing our biggest strengths. Hmm. So there's one called the pleaser. That's the one I described earlier. They never say no. They're always doing everything for everyone. They're always burned out. They're actually resentful by how much they're helping people, but they're still helping people. They have values of compassion and community and service that get overused. So the the way that they describe it is um you know when when your best hand or when your best tool is a hammer you see every problem as a nail. Mm. So if service is your number one thing that you go to, if empathy is your number one thing you go to, then you try to use empathy or service for mm. everything. Mm-hmm. And you need to learn to leverage your other values to balance it out and make sure that that you're being served in harmony not kind of out of sync. And it's easy for us to fall back on what's easiest for us to do. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, one other uh, question as it pertains to the quotient, mm-hmm. maybe asked a little bit differently, JC, if you had to define for yourself, what is your resiliency quotient? What's the scale? You, I don't have a scale. I'm just curious how people might think of what their own quotient is, whether that's values, whether that's like something outside of values, how people show up. I don't define it. I'm just curious what people think, um, not thinking about it from, you know, that other question of are there values that make one resilient, but like, how do you personally practice resiliency and what is your quotient for it? This is actually going to make me cry. Mm. To me, a big part of resilience is the ability to appreciate one's life mm. for where it is. Um, 
And that is not to say that when you're experiencing a, a major trauma that you need to appreciate the trauma for what it is, but the ability to connect to anything that brings joy or happiness um, is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm, I'm, I'm thriving on the other side of my traumas, uh, there was the trauma of growing up in domestic violence. And I mentioned that I lost a career to some injuries. Mm -hmm. um, that was a series of two injuries that left me with a walker for three months after surgery and a leg brace for two and a half years. So um, pretty, pretty big physical trauma there and long-term disability following it for almost a decade. I lost the ability to find joy and appreciation and pleasure in my life because I was always caught up in what wasn't working. And I would categorize myself as being more resilient now because I'm, I have so much of an easier time connecting to gratitude mm. and appreciation, being thankful for my life, for my partner, for my career, for my experiences that have brought me to where I am. Um, the ability to feel that gratitude and to feel warmth and comfort and joy in life is such a freaking gift. Mm -hmm. It's such a gift when you haven't had it for decades. Like it's, it's new to me to be able to enjoy life. This is like five years old, maybe. And even then it's not consistent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you um, for sharing that JC. I appreciate your willingness and vulnerability to, to answer that question. Um, I do, I have a practice. It's my gratefulness journey. So you might have mm -hmm. seen me um, posting it out on LinkedIn. And I like to honor three to five things that I'm grateful for. Uh, Cause I think a gratefulness practice is so important. And I am so grateful for you, my friend in this conversation. Uh, I've loved our space. I've loved our conversation. and. I really like it when I have time to connect with others and so humbled that you give me your time and you get me, you got my brain thinking about things in a different <laughs> perspective, which is part of why I like to do this and have these conversations. So really, really, really appreciate your time and so grateful for you. Well, thank you so much for doing what you're doing, for, for being so inspired and so curious that you're sharing your curiosity with the world, that you're having these conversations. And the, the more we share our ideas out, the more other people can, can catch that little, that little thing they need, just that little bit to shift a perspective or do whatever it is to change their lives. And I, I know that you are doing that with your work. You're you're bringing that out to people and it's absolutely an honor to be invited in and talk about it. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. I loved it. Well, stay well, my friend, and um, look forward to talking to you again later. Most certainly. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. I'm Ashley Carson. Thanks for listening to the Resiliency Theory Podcast. Our journey of learning and my quest to understand resiliency continues. Check out my blog at resiliencytheory.com to continue this conversation. Or if you want to listen to my next podcast, follow me there. If you'd like to connect with me, there are a few ways. You can follow me on my Instagram page at resiliencytheory or my LinkedIn page at Ashley Smith Carson. You can also email me at hello at resiliencytheory.com.